Welcome to Writer Types, the podcast all about crime and mystery fiction. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon. And Steve, why don't you let the people know who's on the show today? Well, Eric, today, Allison Galen talks about her biggest writing regret. I've lost my flair for writing trendy sex. I don't even know what it is anymore. And author Owen Laukinen tells us his idea of a perfect day. Catching lobster in the morning and treating cancer patients in the afternoon. And Peter Swanson calls Writer Types the best podcast he's ever heard. That's made up. That's fiction. All that, plus we talk with author Dharma Keller about writing a transgender action heroine, and we hear from some of the contributors to the collaborative novel Night of the Flood. But first, Steve, have you read any good books lately? Well, you know, Eric, I know of the two of us, I'm the one who's always much more prepared for our interviews. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I can't argue with that. (laughs) It would be smart of you not to argue with that. But regardless... Um, I did read If I Die Tonight by Allison Galen in preparation for our interview. There's a solid mystery at the center of this page turner, but the book does a really great job of investigating just what it's like to parent a teenager in the age of social media. And of course, there's an aging rock star in the cast of characters, so you know that got my attention. Uh, It's an excellent read, highly recommended. How about you, Eric? I feel like this year I have set more books aside than I have in, in recent years. Uh, for some reason, I'm just, I happen to be picking up a lot of stuff that's just not clicking with me. So it actually makes the stuff that works that much more satisfying. And I've had two books recently that clicked with me on vastly different parts of the spectrum. One was a book called North and Central by Bob Hartley, which is uh, an indie published very small book that uh, I didn't know a whole lot about, but I was so glad I read it. It's it's definitely very noir. It's it kind of average working class people. It all takes place around this bar in Chicago. I, I just really loved like the atmosphere and, and just had a story that I could never tell where it was going. Uh, and I think I'm going to talk to Bob uh, next month when I'm in Chicago. So we'll hear more about that book. And then on the complete other side of the spectrum was uh, Orphan X by Greg Hurwitz, which is this big, you know, capital T thriller that's got espionage and intrigue and just a lot of go for broke kind of spy tech kind of stuff. And for a lot of reasons, I probably shouldn't have liked it. But Greg is such a great writer and really zeroed in on what's really appealing about this kind of sort of Jason Bourne-esque story. And uh, it just I really, really dug it. I see how this is going to be, Eric. I'm so proud of myself for reading one book, so you have to talk about two books. (laughs) Any chance I have to shame you, I will take. (laughs) Look, I make that really easy for you, Eric. It's true, yeah. It's (laughs) fish in a barrel. (laughs) Well, first up on the show today is author Allison Galen. What a coincidence. Allison has written novels in the Brenna Spectre series, as well as several highly regarded standalones. And she's got this brand new one that uh, people are talking about, Steve. People very recently have been talking about this book to me. Allison, your new novel, If I Die Tonight, relies heavily on social media as a plot driver. Yes. How crucial is it in this day and age to add these elements to create a truthful story? You know, I think it's pretty crucial, especially depending on the tro- the story that you want to tell. I mean, I look at my life, my daughter's life, you know, sort of the lives of everybody I know, and social media probably plays too much of a role in our lives, but everybody seems to be connected in some way. And it's changed our lives in so many 
ways. I think that not having it just, it doesn't feel very realistic to me, especially um, the story that I wanted to tell, which, uh, you know, has to do a lot with kind of having a lynch mob mentality and, and people just jumping on board with with hating somebody. Um, social media is just the perfect gasoline for the fire for that type of thing. I really love in the uh, opening chapter of your new book, how you have the mom struggling about just how much snooping to do on her <laughs> child's device and on her child's social media platforms. Is that something you know from personal experience or were you just create Oh, no, not at all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, I have a 16 year old daughter. And yes, yes, yes. It's it's, it's such uh, a it's a, it's a question I've been asking myself, you know, ever since she's been on social media since she was about 13. You know, um, how much spying do you want to do? The thing that you really have to realize is that your kids will find a way around you no matter what. Don't tell me that. My kids are still young. I know. Well, they won't now, but they will. I mean, this is the thing. You you have to learn. I mean, if you've raised them right, you can trust them enough, but they are going to, you know, I follow my daughter on Instagram. I, you know, I follow her Facebook page, which she's never on. She's never on Twitter, but I know she's, all the kids have secret little Instagram pages. They just do. <laughs> so you kind of have to accept that for a fact. I mean, we went behind our parents' back in one way or another, and they will, but you just have to hope that you've taught them well enough that they that you can trust them to speak to you about things. And if they are doing anything behind your back, it's not that devastating. That's what we have to hope for. No, well, you, you never did any of that, did you? No, 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 never. I was yeah. just honest as can be. And <laughs> <laughs> I was an open book for my parents. Absolutely. You uh, you recently co-wrote a graphic novel, Normandy Gold, uh, with our pal Megan Abbott. Yes. What about that process of writing a graphic novel turned out to be sort of surprising or different from writing a traditional novel? Oh, I loved it. It was so much fun. Um, it, I would say it's a little bit closer to maybe writing a screenplay or a play, but it's not even that. It's like, it's so visual. If you're familiar with filmmaking and you've done storyboards, that's, what's, that's what the closest thing to it is. You're Instead of communicating with a bunch of readers, as you would in a novel, or communicating with actors and directors as you would in a screenplay, you're, you're communicating specifically to an artist. So you're writing the speech bubbles and the, the captions, but we are also describing each panel as best we can for an artist. And we had a lot of fun with that because, because the whole idea was inspired by 70s conspiracy movies, we wanted to, to look as cinematic as possible. So Megan and I went out and um, we found stills from movies and we just, shoved them in there, uh, you know, Taxi Driver and The Conversation and all these great movies. We, we want it to look something like this. We want her to look a little like this, you know. So um, actually, as, and we also put headshots in there too, which was fun. So if um, people pick up the graphic novel, they'll see that, you know, one of the characters looks really strangely like Robert Redford and <laughs> another one looks a lot like Mark Ruffalo in, um, in Zodiac and, you know, stuff. It, it was a really different process, but I just found it so enjoyable and it was really, really fun working with Megan. Uh, did you guys uh, slip your own headshots in there? Are you and Megan slyly in the background of some of these frames? That's a good idea. We, I think we fight each other over who got to be Normandy, but, you know, <laughs> so we just decided to leave ourselves out of it. <laughs> Allison, you have a big readership in Europe. What kinds of questions did they ask you that are different than an American reader might ask you? 
Well, they spell all the questions differently. You know, they put, you know, little <laughs> extra U's and things. Oh, and that's how this is going to go? That's <laughs> how we're going to do this? <laughs> it's funny, though. I mean, I really, it's, I mean, I guess, you know, my books are really American, but I don't think when I'm writing them, like, oh, I'm, these are so American, you know, but they, but they are. So I, I think that especially a book like If I Die Tonight, I mean, it's a really sort of specific, like a small New York town is just, it's something really different than, than a small town in Europe might be, or, you know, um, when my last one with What Remains of Me, I mean, since it was a Hollywood story, that might have been a little bit more, you know, sort of comprehensible for um, for for the European readers. I mean, that's just, you, shorthand, you say it's a Hollywood story, everybody understands that everywhere. But uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, your questions are just a lot more American. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> now, you your early novels uh, were a little bit different. And I love this quote uh, that I read about uh, your novel, You Kill Me. It was praised by the Chicago Tribune. And their quote was, uh, it was full of suspense and trendy sex. What does that mean? <laughs> That's our question. What the hell is trendy sex? <laughs> I laughed about that for the longest time. I'm like, trendy sex. Wow. And I, you know, and I have not written any trendy sex since then. That's the sad part. You know, <laughs> I've lost my flair for writing trendy sex. I don't even know what it is anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> all for those trendy sex days of our youth. <laughs> when we would follow the latest trend as far as our sex lives went. Ah, those were the days. Yes. <laughs> Not all of your novels deal with trendy sex, but they do deal with <laughs> secrets. So do you have a lot of secrets? I mean, you can tell Eric and I. It's, we're not recording this or anything. No, no, no. Well, everybody has secrets. That's why I love writing about them. It's so universal, you know? Even if the secret is like, I ate that last piece of cake and I don't want anybody to know that, you know? No, it was the dog did that or, you know, whatever. Everybody... Everybody has secrets. As soon as you learn to talk, you, you start keeping secrets from people. So um, I think a lot of suspense, you know, it is, is sort of based on that. You might be magnifying the secrets. The secrets might be, you know, much more damaging or worse than anything you can imagine in your own life. But having secrets, I think, is something that's just universal that everybody can relate to. So that's, so, that's why I like to write about it. And... And I find that when I write a book, the first thing I try and figure out is I have my cast of characters and I try and figure out what everybody's secret is and then how it's going to come out throughout the course of the book. That's just really how I sort of approach it. You know, it's, it's funny. People always say like, I mean, I, I sometimes I teach writing and, and people always say, you know, write what you know. And I think that's the biggest mistake people make in, in terms of saying write what you know is that, oh, yeah, I have to write about a writer who lives in Woodstock, and you know like it has a, a dog that barks too much and, you know, a teenage daughter. No, that's so irritating. Everybody's life is too boring. But I think by write what you know, it's write what emotions you know, write what things you know. So writing about secrets, that's something that you know, right? You could write about grief, you can write about fear, you could write about things like that. So write about emotions that you know, and then it will feel real. So in terms of writing about secrets, I just, I feel like that's something I can take and I can think, what if my secret wasn't that I ate that last piece of cake? What if it was that I was 
doing something I should have the night that somebody got murdered, you know? Like, what if it's that? That brings up a good question. What were you doing the night that person got murdered? I was eating that last piece of cake. I knew that was going to be your answer, and I'm frankly tired of it. <laughs> I must be really hungry for cake. I just... <laughs> And now, Allison, we're uh, we're doing this interview in the thick of award season, and it's award season in Hollywood and also in the crime and mystery fiction universe. Are awards and accolades, of which you have earned many, are they important to you as a writer? Well, I think they're exciting and they're they're fun, and I I love you know I'm a big sort of pop culture fan. I'm addicted to watching the Academy Awards and everything. So when you do get nominated and you get to go to the ceremony and dress up and everything. It's, it's really fun. Um, I've lost a lot of awards. Too. <laughs> so, so I can't, you know, if, if it was really that important to me, I'd be like sitting in a corner crying because I've lost a lot more awards than I've won. <laughs> yeah. um, you're talking, you're talking to the right two guys. And, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. See, right. you guys know what it's like to lose an award and it's oh. fun. It's great to be nominated, but you still lost the award. So, you know, I think the best way to view any award nomination is, hey, it's a it's a party and you get to see all your friends. That's the best way to do it. Solid advice. Well, Allison, thank you for uh, for joining us, and uh, I'm gonna go uh, cry in the corner now. <laughs> Me too. I'm gonna go eat some cake. <laughs> All right, fearless listeners, if you heard our crime quiz episode taped live at BaushaCon in Toronto, you might think that Owen Laukinen would never want to be on the show again. Uh, you might think he'd gone to, into the Canadian version of witness protection after that. Well, Eric, we got him back to talk about his new novel, Gale Force. And we promise we're not going to ask him any questions. Oh, wait, I forgot. Asking questions is kind of the point of an interview, isn't it? Yeah. And we promise there won't be any questions. Just awkward silence followed by, <laughs> are you guys recording this? <laughs> oh, and your brand new novel that uh, is out in May is called Gale Force. And this is a standalone. And the first standalone that's under your own name that isn't uh, a part of your Stevens and Windermere series. Does it feel a little bit uh, like starting over? Yeah, yeah, in some ways. I mean, I hope that this will translate into a series. But in many ways, it feels like starting over in a really good way. And that I think, you know, if you write a series for a long time, people start to take for granted that, that you have a, a book coming out every year and that the book is going to be about a couple of detectives. And, you know, it doesn't, it just kind of flies under the radar. And I think with Gale Force, which will be out in May and is a, a tugboat, thriller mystery like it's enough to to kind of stand out it seems to uh to be kind of a reset in, in the best possible way but is, you're still joining that frankly very tired subgenre of tugboat thrillers yes i i'm try hoping to bring something new to uh you know trying to take the conventions and flip them on their ear a little bit because we've all how many tugboat thrillers have we read i mean yeah just too many so. Too many. <laughs> now, Owen, you've done time on a fishing boat, correct? Correct, yes. And I like the way that you phrased that, done time, because <laughs> in many ways it, it does start to feel like a prison. <laughs> so has this story been brewing for a long time? Yeah, yeah, it has. Uh, I, was, I was just thinking today, um, you know, I think ever since I was a kid, I've wanted to write not necessarily a 
quote unquote tugboat thriller, but certainly like a, a nautical adventure. I didn't I didn't know it would I didn't know there'd be tugboats, but uh, yeah, like my my grandfather uh, was a boat builder and a fisherman, and my uncle was a commercial fisherman, and my dad, uh, who's a doctor, his midlife crisis was buying a commercial fishing boat and uh, catching lobster in the morning and treating cancer patients in the afternoon. And so I've like grown up around boats, and it's kind of uh, cheesy to say, but like there is something about the like romance of the sea, you know, being in one's blood. Okay, so wait, wait a second. You've got boats in your blood, but you are an unabashed train enthusiast. So, what is it about transportation that captures your imagination? I I think it's just you know always wanting to be somewhere other than where I am, and you know looking for an escape route. <laughs> I uh, I used to make my parents take me to the bus stop so I could count the buses that go by. So you know this is it's just a it's an affliction really. Wow, I guess. You, you couldn't necessarily say that the Stevens and Windermere series were like a jet set international thriller series. I mean, why, why do you think you didn't start immediately with a, sort of a globe trotting adventure series? Well, I mean, the thing is like the professionals takes place uh, in a lot of airports and hotel rooms around the States. Honestly, like I've, I've traveled the globe a fair bit, but I'm most at home in like seedy backwoods motels in Tunica, Mississippi or, <laughs> those are the, the interesting parts for me. So in the Stevens and Windermere books, they, you know, they do travel quite a bit to the places that uh, I, I do a thing when I go on road trips where I just try to like stay at the sleaziest motel I can possibly stay in. So the professionals is, is a lot of, a lot of those type of places. And that's what the Stevens and Windermere books are like. So, okay. But then I think the obvious question is when it comes time to write a book, do you hunker down at home or are these books that we're fans of written in seedy motels all across the world? Oh no. When I'm in seedy motels, I'm trying to survive and, <laughs> and perhaps do some research. I need a comfortable couch in a safe place to actually do the writing. Uh, I have never written anything in a seedy motel room besides maybe like a desperate message for help. <laughs> Now, you uh, have a rather robust social media presence, uh, like Steve said, mostly to do with your train obsession. Yeah. Um, and also, I, I want to know, how does it feel to be less famous than your dog? Well, I mean, it feels great. <laughs> uh, if, you've, if you've seen my dog, you can understand why. Yes, that's true. Uh, you know, she's she's got the looks in the family. So... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, I mean, I've tried taking selfies of myself with chew toys in my mouth, but it, just, it, it appeals to a far smaller uh, subset of the population. You have to build an author platform. Yeah, I, I've come to, the, come to the conclusion that Lucy is better than middle-aged man with chew toys as, as platform. But now, but now you have, uh, quote unquote, written a book with Lucy. Is that right? Yeah, and it, I mean, it's hard to, like, describe it without it sounding cheesy or sounding like, oh, here's a here's this asshole who's, uh, you know, I don't know. It sounds like some, like a stupid thing that a movie star would do and <laughs> expect to be, like, patted on the back for. But no, so it was inspired by Lucy because Lucy's a pit bull and she's a rescue dog. And uh, so as soon as you adopt a pit bull, you become, by law, very, very, like, militant about 
protecting the pit bull breed and defending it from like jerks who think pit bulls are going to kill children. And uh, so essentially, you know, as I got more and more into pit bull ownership, I, I started researching, you know, these programs where prisoners uh, are brought rescue dogs and pit bulls to train where it's kind of a redemption thing for not only this, these dogs that have been in dog fighting rings or that have been really mistreated, but also for these prisoners. And so the book kind of grew from that, like what would happen if a prisoner trained a dog and then when the dog got out, the dog got into trouble and the prisoner, when he finished his sentence, found out the dog was in trouble. And, you know, so it's essentially like Jack Reacher with a rescue dog uh, has been the way I've pitched it. I'm going to be really, really disappointed if your author photo doesn't have a chew toy in your mouth for that particular book. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually emailing with the photographer right now to set up the author shot. Uh, I'll add that in. Um, Lucy go. will be in the author shot. And Lucy, uh, when I was negotiating with the publisher over this deal, we made it a condition that Lucy be allowed to come on the road to signings so lucy will be at bookstores for this is uh, her name above yours on the jacket it had better be <laughs> we know who's selling the books here but yeah. <laughs> well, oh and we are in the middle of award season you know that's true in yeah. hollywood but it's it's also true in the crime and mystery fiction world that we live in so yeah. what we wanted to know is are awards and award nominations important to you as a writer like, they shouldn't be, but of course they are. Yes, they're more important than I'd care to admit. And damn it, one of these days I'm going to win. Well, I do have uh, one more question. Uh, actually, I don't have it. Uh, my daughter, whom you know and have met, uh, had a question for you. Do you mind if I call her in here? And uh, No, no. Okay. Hi, Molly. Hi. How are you? Good. So if you were to write a book about two favorite things, you're dogs and trains what would it be about ah that's a great question i could write a whole series about dogs and trains i i mean i would probably write like a children's book about a, a dog who got to drive a train probably or a dog who like foiled a train hijacking and became a hero I, you know <laughs> um could you name a character after me Yes, definitely. Do you want to wait for the dog, the dog book, or do you want a character sooner? I'll put a character oh, in the one she, I write. To, she, uh, Molly is way more into uh, murder in books than you would think. So I think it would actually be an honor for her to get killed in your next book. Oh yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> I will. I will kill you in the next book, Molly. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thanks for the question. You know, Steve, I love the idea of a tugboat thriller. I think it's gonna be the hot new thing. And here's what we want Writer Types listeners to do. Find us on Twitter, at Writer Types. Let's all come up with the perfect title for your tugboat thriller, hashtag tugboat thriller. <laughs> and let's see what you guys can come up with for the best title of a rock'em sock'em thriller that takes place on a tugboat. And the winner will get a copy of Owen's new book when it comes out, courtesy of Writer Types. That's right, and Owen's book comes out in May, but you know what, Steve, that's far too long to wait for a new book. Well, lucky for us, we have our resident book reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman, on the line. 
Dan and Kate, uh, last we connected with you guys, you were off in Kansas City talking to a bunch of your favorite comic creators, and now you've actually read some books. We have. <laughs> well, we had to do something on the plane on our way back from Kansas City. So I picked up the anthology, The Obama Inheritance, edited by Gary Phillips. Um, it's short stories, basically, that are ripped from right-wing headlines. He and all the 15 authors that are in the anthology take like the best Obama conspiracy theories and spin them into short stories. Um, one is by our co-host, Eric Beatner called True Skin. I've heard of that one. You've heard of that guy? Yeah. This anthology also exposed me to authors that I haven't read, such as Walter Mosley, which I know is a crime for not having read Walter Mosley, but this is a great way to get into his writing. Um, he's got a short story called A Different Frame of Reference. It also includes a short story by Travis Richardson called I Know They're In There. And he is also another author that I've never read. Um, he writes His story focuses on death panels, which I had totally forgot about that that was a thing because the last year and a half has been so insane that you just forget about like what all the other stories were that fed into the Obama uh, presidency. So... So it just makes a really interesting and fun read. So I've been working my way through that and I'm really enjoying it so far. So Dan, do you still read books or what? Only with pictures, sir. Only with pictures. But uh, as I work my way back into just text only, I got a, uh, an advanced copy of uh, what I think is going to be one of the biggest books of the year, um, Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. You know, a lot of the things that I read um, will have more of a, a sardonic bent to it or more of a hyperviolent piece to it or or something like that more of a fringe piece hillier's jar of hearts uh, was one of the most suspenseful books that i've read lately as i step a little bit further and further outside of my wheelhouse um, you start exposing yourself to some great stuff jar of hearts is the story of three high school friends but everything kind of takes this horrible horrible turn when an older boy falls for georgina and it destroys their friendship and it destroys their whole lives that they built for themselves. And then Angela ends up uh, being murdered and Georgina helps. And it's that kind of tension that it, you feel it physically. So I kind of been telling people I turned into joy from friends because we're really getting into it. It, it binds up your, your stomach and you're sweating. And then it, I just wanted to throw the book in the freezer every time it got too heavy. <laughs> And then, then I found out, I, I realized I was carrying the book around the house. You know, I was like, I'm going to go do some laundry. So I would carry the book downstairs and then I'd do the laundry. And I'm like, then I would read a couple pages. And I was like, ah, then I would carry the book back upstairs. And I'd set it down and I'd what, click at my phone. And I'm like, no, I don't want to read my phone. I want to read the book. And then I'd put the book back in the freezer. This is absolutely the book that I'm comparing everything else to this year. Well, those are great suggestions, you guys. And I can't wait to hear what you pull out of your freezer next month to talk about. <laughs> Well, I certainly hope the Malmans are staying warm there in Minnesota. But, you know, we talked to an author in New England who was really getting hammered by the weather recently. That's right. Author Peter Swanson started by telling us his harrowing story of trying to land a plane in a nor'easter. Eric, was he flying the plane? God, I hope not. He's not qualified for that. He's an author. But he's a hell of an author. As authors, <laughs> we're barely qualified for anything else. Especially hosting a podcast. <laughs> I got hammered by it coming in on a plane. I actually, uh, we flew in, I flew into Providence uh, two days ago and 
we were coming into land, wheels down and everything, planes going like this, and they, it, the pilot just took off, like failed landing, just took off, said we can't land in Providence. Oh no. Said we're going up to Logan, circled Logan, said we can't land in Logan, and went over to Connecticut and landed over there. So had a little bit of a fright. Wow. I mean, not much of one, but enough that like, you start thinking about your next book idea. That's what you start thinking about. <laughs> yeah, your next book idea. Anyway. The new Peter Swanson thriller, You Can't Land in Providence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, in your brand new novel, All the Beautiful Lies, uh, your character, Harry, is, let's say, manipulated by the women in his life. Yeah. Uh, is this a case of write what you know? <laughs> um, no, it really isn't. Um I mean, yeah, yeah. Obviously, I've been manipulated by women because I'm a man, but but not in in the specifics of this book. He's being manipulated by a sort of an older woman, a stepmother. That's made up. That's fiction. Your your uh, your novel, her every fear, is told from multiple viewpoints. Was that a yes. difficult thing for you to manage? No, I mean, I think it made it easier because you know, if you do one viewpoint, you can only tell one side of the story. And I, you know, for her every fear, I wanted. I guess I really wanted two sides of the story because I wanted to see the protagonist side, but I also wanted to delve more into the criminal side, which is kind of what I like to do in general in books. You know, you can do that two ways. You can, one way is to have a monologue at the end of the book where the bad guy tells the protagonist everything they've done and you give it away that way. And one way is to get into their head a little and, and show it from their side. So I was thinking of doing her every fear straight um, and the Kate's, point of view, but realized halfway through that I, I wanted to show the other side. So at that point, are you talking about a complete rewrite or did you just go in and add other perspectives? You know, I'm a pantser. I, I start with a premise and I start with characters and I go from there. And I have general ideas about what I think might happen, but um, I'm willing to switch up my book, you know, halfway through. And, you, you know, for me, it works. Uh, I think for other people, it's different. I'm not a, I'm not an advocate so much as this is the way I do it. Well, it's, it's brave. I, I'm, I'm an outliner myself for sure. And sure. I, 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 I think I would, uh, I would end up throwing out more pages than I kept if I just tried to wing it. Yeah. I mean, I wing it, but I, you know, I, I definitely don't outline, but I also, I do have a direction. I mean, I'm not like totally just floating in the wind where like anything takes me anywhere. I mean, I, I have a sense of where I'm going and there is, there's always a like terrible moment halfway through where you're like stuck. You're like, I have no idea where this is going. And I think that's the point at which, you know, I've abandoned books in that situation. So um, sometimes you do lo lose a lot already. Now I, I find that your books, uh, you're more of a, of a slow burn throughout the books. You know, you're not one for car chases and shootouts, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, wh what about that style of storytelling do you like giving to an audience? It's sort of like lighting a long fuse. Yeah, you know, it's it has to do with what I read, and I love slow burn novels. And in some ways, I wish, like, I if if I could write a thriller that was just purely from me without any thought to what my editor or my agent wants, I would go even more slow burn. Like, I love the idea of a thriller that just blows up at the end um, once. I like dread. I mean, I like dread more than action. So you guys know this too. I think, you know, you're always torn between wanting to build your characters, but also wanting to get into some action early on, get the get the reader hooked, and, and how much can you get away with? And I think I've been trying to get away with more and more of a slow burn as I get older. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's, it's what my 
tendencies are telling me to do. Well, you, you've also written a lot of poetry, and if, if there was any doubt at all that you are a thriller writer at heart, is it true that you once wrote a series of sonnets based on Alfred Hitchcock films? I did. I did. That was a that was a winter project. So, so I wrote one. I mean, I wrote a sonnet based on the film Rebecca, and I kind of liked it. I liked it enough to think about. Well, I, I I wonder if I could do a couple other movies, and then I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll do them all. And there's 53 <laughs> Hitchcock films. Um, which is kind of a sonnet sequence. 53 is about right. So it gave me a great project, which was to rewatch the films that I um, had watched already, but then to watch for the first time several of his films. I don't know if the poems are awesome. The process was awesome. You know, to watch one filmmaker, or to watch all 53 of his films is fascinating. Is that something you've ever done with uh, with authors? Have you latched onto someone and been like, oh, I, I, now I have to read everything they've ever written? I've read everything that John D. McDonald ever wrote. The guy who wrote the Travis McGee series in the fifties oh. and sixties, and he's an oddity. Um, well, it's, first of all, he wrote a lot. So he wrote, I think, hundred twenty books, something like that. Wow! And I started reading them when I was a teenager, and he was a big influence on me. It's kind of forgotten now. Um, he's a great writer. He's a little dated just because he's writing the books are straight out of Mad Men era, so um, you know, they have that kind of feel to them um, in a good way and maybe in a bad way. But yeah, I just I just started collecting them. You know, any used bookstore I go into, I would always look for John D. McDonald, grab anything I didn't have. And uh, eventually one day I read all of them. I, I can say uh, with your new book, it's probably easy to be a completist of your work because this is, uh, you're not up to 120 yet. No, I'm up to four, which, um, you know, when I looked at the proof of the new one and saw, you know, also by and it had three you know i never thought i'd get there so it's a good feeling you know i'm not on a hundred book pace let's put it that way <laughs> unless you're writing under multiple pen names that we don't know you could be writing romance novels on the side we don't know that yeah you know i could be thomas harris have you heard of him <laughs> it's that you this it's you this whole time <laughs> so i i read somewhere that your writing has been translated in 30 languages what, what's the most interesting question you've ever gotten from a translator about one of your books? The Korean translator had a, a, a lot of questions about cars for whatever reason in um, my first book, The Girl with a Clock for Our Heart. And I don't know anything about cars, but I kind of made my main character a car guy, which I'm not. Um, and I just I made him into sobs, but I got all these questions about cars. I don't know if they thought I was interested in that or not, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. They don't ask me questions, which makes me think, I don't know if they're doing a great job translating. <laughs> I mean, I'll never know, but... <laughs> You're not going to learn Korean just to be able to read your own translations? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I like the idea, though, that your jacket copy uh, in the bio describes you as a sob expert in all these other countries. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's funny. They really, they really picked up on that. I'm, go I'm speaking at a convention next week. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say, but... Now, you live in New England, and uh, is there a definition of sort of a New England noir in the same way that there is like a Southern fiction kind of vibe that books have? I don't know if there is, actually, because someone asked me to do this for this next book is to write a list of New England noir. Yeah, I mean, Southern noir for sure, and, and you, you kind of know what that is when you, when you read it. New England, it seems like it's kind of all over the map. I mean, you definitely think of sort of 
coastal Maine kind of um, that that kind of murder mystery. But there's not a ton that you could just name off the tip of your tongue. So, Peter, we're recording this interview uh, deep in the heart of awards season. And yes. I, we were wondering, are awards and award nominations important to you as a writer? Um, how do I say this? No, but I'd be thrilled to get them. You know, most people's bios have a list of the awards they've won. So mine is a bio of awards I've lost but been nominated for. So, you know, if you lose, you don't have to go up and give a speech. Silver lining. Silver lining, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would, it would make my day probably to be nominated. Well, maybe this is the book, the brand new one, All the Beautiful Lies. You never know. We're star makers, Peter. So now that you've been on the Writer Types <laughs> podcast, uh, think so? I think, I, well, I hope so, actually. <laughs> Send me correct pronunciations of your name. So I'll thank you in my award speech. <laughs> well, folks, it's unpanel time. And the book on everyone's lips right now is the new collaborative novel, Night of the Flood. We caught up with the editors of this unique project, Ed Amar and Sarah M. Chen, and asked them and some of their contributors what it was like to work on a collaborative novel. First up is co-editor Sarah M. Chen. So this is the first collaborative novel that I've ever worked on. And when Ed asked me to participate, I was thrilled and honored to be asked. And I said, yes, of course. And then later I thought about it and got a little anxious and a little panicked. And I thought, oh my God, what kind of crazy project did I agree to participate in? But once I relaxed and got over my little panic attack, I was fine. And I'd have to say, this is one of the best experiences that I've ever had working on a book or a short story. I feel really lucky to be involved with this group. We all clicked really well together. You know, what could have been a nightmare project ended up being not easy, but it just, things just seem to fall into place and we all just worked really hard and I'm really proud of what we've accomplished and most importantly, it was really fun. This is Ed E.A. Amar, one of the co-editors of and a contributor to The Night of the Flood. There are a lot of challenges when it comes to putting together a novel of linked stories, but truthfully, I think it's a lot easier when you're working with talented writers and good friends. I mean, the books received some nice reviews, and we've all been really happy to share the credit. And technically, if you want to divide the credit, you'd have to split it 14 ways, and it's ridiculous to consider analyzing that. You know, but for the sake of it, you could say that we'd each get about 7%. That's not exactly fair, though, because Hank Philippi Ryan was nice enough to write a guest introduction, and we owe her some credit, so that works out to about... 6% credit per person. If you're actually petty and small enough to calculate something like that. You know, but I, I'd also say it's probably only fair that the two co-editors, me and Sarah M. Chen, should get a little more credit since we co-edited the whole thing. So that works out to about 8% credit for us and about 5 for everyone else. You know, and, and then again, I brought Sarah into the project. So I guess I get most of the credit. I win! Yay, Ed! Sorry, what was the question? With Ed and Sarah guiding the effort, you can just imagine how things went. No, actually, they went much more smoothly than I ever expected. I think the major contributing factor was the fabulous chemistry this group developed as the project moved along. I knew many of the contributors going in, so there was some initial familiarity, but as the book shaped up, everyone fed off each other and really seemed to mesh. 
We communicated primarily through a Facebook group, so I knew I always had a place to go whenever I was in need of some quality procrastination time. Those contributors I didn't already know, I got to meet at a group lunch we had during the Toronto BoucherCon, and we were fortunate that Eric and Lance from Down and Out Books joined us. I should add here what a great publishing partner Down and Out is, really terrific to work with. As far as writing my own story, because I was one of the last few writers to become involved, I had an advantage when it came to incorporating existing characters and plot threads into my work. I could go back and read everyone else's mostly completed stories. I will say this, I felt some serious pressure to write a great story because I didn't want to let the team down. All in all, I had a blast working on this book, and I hope we can all get together on a future project. I'm Gwen Florio, and I wrote the eighth chapter, Marta. In that chapter, Marta is a young Mexican maid to a very wealthy elderly woman. And on the night of the flood, it's the maid who's the one who takes charge. A movie I really enjoy is Defiance, which is a 2008 film about the Bielski partisans. And these were a group of Jews who hid out in the forest in Belarus rather than go to the death camps. And that existence overturned the natural order of things so that um, blue collar workers and farmers had way better survival skills than intellectuals. Uh, the flood disaster gives Marta that same sort of agency and she seizes the moment to her best advantage. And all of a sudden, she's the one who's the boss. I love the opportunity that the book gave me to play with that concept. But what I loved most was working with these incredibly talented writers on the project whose work really forced me to up my game. Our next guest is Dharma Keller, who just released Chaser, the first in a new series of thrillers. Uh, unfortunately, Steve, not set on a tugboat. Well, I'm sure we can get around that one since the great tugboat thrillers have yet to be written. But Dharma's been breaking barriers in the crime fiction world for a while now but she never forgets that the thrill comes first. So your new series stars Jinx Baloo. Uh, yes. so she, she's a bounty hunter, mm -hmm. uh, but she's a very unique one. And I'm yep. gonna let you explain to our audience what makes her so unique. Well, a number of things, uh, but primarily is that she is transgender, which is really more a part of her backstory because she transitioned years ago. And it's kind of something that she's kind of put in her rear view but she is outed by a local newspaper reporter and all of that baggage comes into creating havoc for her as far as her career is going. So she finds herself blackballed by a lot of the uh, bail bond agents in the area. It's, it's a very testosterone driven uh, industry, as you can imagine, you know, mostly male. There are a few women uh, uh, bounty hunters, but uh, so she, she's, she's got, uh, being female is a strike against her. Being transgender is a strike against her. And so she's just trying to find work and prove herself. So so the book is a thriller first and foremost. But right. did, you, did you find uh, any challenges with having a trait like being transgender taking over the narrative of the story? It's, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote this story is because I wanted to write a uh, thriller that wasn't an issue story as far as, you know, it isn't about her transition. It isn't really about her coming out. She does get outed, but uh, it's not about her transitioning or anything. It's about her working as a bounty hunter. And so there were a few times where I'm like, uh, am I pushing? 
Welcome to Writer Types, the podcast all about crime and mystery fiction. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon. And Steve, why don't you let the people know who's on the show today? Well, Eric, today Allison Galen talks about her biggest writing regret. I've lost my flair for writing trendy sex. I don't even know what it is anymore. And author Owen Laukinen tells us his idea of a perfect day. Catching lobster in the morning and treating cancer patients in the afternoon. And Peter Swanson calls Writer Types the best podcast he's ever heard. That's made up. That's fiction. All that, plus we talk with author Dharma Keller about writing a transgender action heroine, and we hear from some of the contributors to the collaborative novel Night of the Flood. But first, Steve, have you read any good books lately? Well, you know, Eric, I know of the two of us, I'm the one who's always much more prepared for our interviews. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I can't argue with that. (laughs) It would be smart of you not to argue with that. But regardless... Um, I did read If I Die Tonight by Allison Galen in preparation for our interview. There's a solid mystery at the center of this page turner, but the book does a really great job of investigating just what it's like to parent a teenager in the age of social media. And of course, there's an aging rock star in the cast of characters, so you know that got my attention. Uh, It's an excellent read, highly recommended. How about you, Eric? I feel like this year I have set more books aside than I have in, in recent years. Uh, for some reason, I'm just, I happen to be picking up a lot of stuff that's just not clicking with me. So it actually makes the stuff that works that much more satisfying. And I've had two books recently that clicked with me on vastly different parts of the spectrum. One was uh, a book called North and Central by Bob Hartley, which is uh, an indie published very small book that uh, I didn't know a whole lot about, but I was so glad I read it. It's it's definitely very noir. It's it kind of average working class people. That all takes place around this bar in Chicago. I, I just really loved like the atmosphere and and just had a story that I could never tell where it was going. Uh, and I think I'm going to talk to Bob uh, next month when I'm in Chicago, so we'll hear more about that book. And then on the complete other side of the spectrum was uh, Orphan X by Greg Hurwitz, which is this big, you know, capital T thriller that's got espionage and intrigue and just a lot of go for broke kind of spy tech kind of stuff. And for a lot of reasons, I probably shouldn't have liked it. But Greg is such a great writer and really zeroed in on what's really appealing about this kind of sort of Jason Bourne-esque story. And uh, it just I really, really dug it. I see how this is going to be, Eric. I'm so proud of myself for reading one book, so you have to talk about two books. (laughs) Any chance I have to shame you, I will take. (laughs) Look, I make that really easy for you, Eric. It's true, yeah. It's (laughs) fish in a barrel. (laughs) Well, first up on the show today is author Allison Galen. What a coincidence. Allison has written novels in the Brenna Spectre series, as well as several highly regarded standalones, and she's got this brand new one that uh, people are talking about, Steve. People very recently have been talking about this book to me. Allison, your new novel, If I Die Tonight, relies heavily on social media as a plot driver. Yes. How crucial is it in this day and age to add these elements to create a truthful story? You know, I think it's pretty crucial, especially depending on the tr- the story that you want to tell. I mean, I look at my life, my daughter's life, you know, sort of the lives of everybody I know, and social media probably plays too much of a role in our lives, but everybody seems to be connected in some way. And it's changed our lives in so many 
ways. I think that not having it just, it doesn't feel very realistic to me, especially um, the story that I wanted to tell, which, you know, has to do a lot with kind of having a lynch mob mentality and, and people just jumping on board with, with hating somebody. Um, social media is just the perfect gasoline for the fire for that type of thing. I really love in the uh, opening chapter of your new book, how you have the mom struggling about just how much snooping to do on her <laughs> child's device and on her child's social media platforms. Is that something you know from personal experience or were you just creating? Oh, no, not at all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, I have a 16 year old daughter. And yes, yes, yes. It's it's, it's such uh, a it's a, it's a question I've been asking myself, you know, ever since she's been on social media since she was about 13, you know, um, how much spying do you want to do? The thing that you really have to realize is that your kids will find a way around you no matter what. Don't tell me that. My kids are still young. I know. Well, they won't now, but they will. I mean, this is the thing. You you have to learn. I mean, if you've raised them right, you can trust them enough, but they are going to. You know, I follow my daughter on Instagram. I, you know, I follow her Facebook page, which she's never on. She's never on Twitter, but I know she's all the kids have secret little Instagram pages. They just do. <laughs> so you kind of have to accept that for a fact. I mean, we went behind our parents' back in one way or another, and they will, but you just have to hope that you've taught them well enough that they that you can trust them to speak to you about things. And if they are doing anything behind your back, it's not that devastating that's what we have to hope for no well you, you never did any of that did you no 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 never i was yeah. just honest as can be and <laughs> <laughs> i was an open book for my parents absolutely you uh you recently co-wrote a graphic novel normandy gold uh with our pal megan abbott yes what about that process of writing a graphic novel turned out to be sort of surprising or different from writing a traditional novel Oh, I loved it. It was so much fun. Um, it, I would say it's a little bit closer to maybe writing a screenplay or a play, but it's not even that. It's like, it's so visual. If you're familiar with filmmaking and you've done storyboards, that's, what's, that's what the closest thing to it is. You're Instead of communicating with a bunch of readers, as you would in a novel, or communicating with actors and directors as you would in a screenplay, you're, you're communicating specifically to an artist. So you're writing the speech bubbles and the, the captions, but we are also describing each panel as best we can for an artist. And we had a lot of fun with that because, because the whole idea was inspired by 70s conspiracy movies. We wanted to, to look as cinematic as possible. So Megan and I went out and um, we found stills from movies and we just, shoved them in there, uh, you know, Taxi Driver and The Conversation and all these great movies. We, like, we want it to look something like this. We want her to look a little like this, you know? So um, actually, as, and we also put headshots in there too, which was fun. So if um, people pick up the graphic novel, they'll see that, you know, one of the characters looks really strangely like Robert Redford and <laughs> another one looks a lot like Mark Ruffalo in, um, in Zodiac and, you know, stuff. It, it was a really different process, but I just found it so enjoyable and it was really, really fun working with Megan. Uh, did you guys uh, slip your own headshots in there? Are you and Megan slyly in the background of some of these frames? Good idea. We, I think we fight each other over who got to be Normandy, but, you know, <laughs> so we just decided to leave ourselves out of it. <laughs> Allison, you have a big readership in Europe. What kinds of questions did they ask you that are different than an American reader might ask you? 
Well, they spell all the questions differently. You know, they put, you know, little <laughs> extra U's and things. Oh, and that's how this is going to go? That's <laughs> how we're going to do this? It's funny, though. I mean, I really, it's, I mean, I guess, you know, my books are really American, but I don't think when I'm writing them, like, oh, I'm, these are so American, you know, but they, but they are. So I, I think that, especially a book like If I Die Tonight, I mean, it's a really sort of, specific, like a small New York town is just, it's something really different than, than a small town in Europe might be, or, you know, um, when my last one with what remains of me, I mean, since it was a Hollywood story, that might've been a little bit more, you know, sort of comprehensible for, um, for, for the European readers. I mean, that's just you shorthand. You say it's a Hollywood story. Everybody understands that everywhere, but, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, your questions are just a lot more American. That's what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> now, you your early novels uh, were a little bit different. And I, I love this quote uh, that I read about uh, your novel, You Kill Me. It was praised by the Chicago Tribune. And their quote was, uh, it was full of suspense and trendy sex. What does that mean? <laughs> That's our question. What the hell is trendy sex? <laughs> I laughed about that for the longest time. I'm like, trendy sex. Wow. And I, you know, and I have not written any trendy sex since then. That's the sad part, you know? <laughs> I've lost my flair for writing trendy sex. I don't even know what it is anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> all for those trendy sex days of our youth. <laughs> when we would follow the latest trend as far as our sex lives went. Ah, those were the days. Yes. <laughs> Not all of your novels deal with trendy sex, but they do deal with <laughs> secrets. So do you have a lot of secrets? I mean, you can tell Eric and I. It's, we're not recording this or anything. No, no, no. Well, everybody has secrets. That's why I love writing about them. And it's so universal, you know? Even if the secret is like, I ate that last piece of cake and I don't want anybody to know that, you know? No, it was the dog did that or, you know, whatever. <laughs> everybody... Everybody has secrets. As soon as you learn to talk, you, you start keeping secrets from people. So um, I think a lot of suspense, you know, it is, is sort of based on that. You might be magnifying the secrets. The secrets might be, you know, much more damaging or worse than anything you can imagine in your own life. But having secrets, I think, is something that's just universal that everybody can relate to. So that's so that's why I like to write about it. And and I find that when I write a book, the first thing I try and figure out is I have my cast of characters and I try and figure out what everybody's secret is and then how it's going to come out throughout the course of the book. That's just really how I sort of approach it. You know, it's, it's funny. People always say like, I mean, I, I sometimes I teach writing and, and people always say, you know, write what you know. And I think that's the biggest mistake people make in, in terms of saying, write what you know, is that, oh, yeah, I have to write about a writer who lives in Woodstock and, you know like it has a, a dog that barks too much and, you know, a teenage daughter. No, that's so irritating. Everybody's life is too boring. But I think by write what you know, it's write what emotions you know. Write what things you know. So writing about secrets, that's something that you know, right? You could write about grief. You could write about fear. You could write about things like that. So write about emotions that you know, and then it will feel real. So in terms of writing about secrets, I just, I feel like that's something I can take and I can think, what if my secret wasn't that I ate that last piece of cake. What if it was that I was 
doing something I should have the night that somebody got murdered, you know? Like, what if it's that? That brings up a good question. What were you doing the night that person got murdered? I was eating that last piece of cake. I knew that was going to be your answer, and I'm frankly tired of it. <laughs> I must be really hungry for cake. I just... <laughs> And now, Allison, we're uh, we're doing this interview in the thick of award season, and it's award season in Hollywood and also in the crime and mystery fiction universe. Are awards and accolades, of which you have earned many, are they important to you as a writer? Well, I think they're exciting and they're they're fun, and I I love you know I'm a big sort of pop culture fan. I'm addicted to watching the Academy Awards and everything. So when you do get nominated and you get to go to the ceremony and dress up and everything. It's, it's really fun. Um, I've lost a lot of awards. Too. <laughs> so, so I can't, you know, if, if it was really that important to me, I'd be like sitting in a corner crying because I've lost a lot more awards than I've won. <laughs> yeah. um, you're talking, you're talking to the right two guys. <laughs> well, there you go. See, right. You guys know what it's like to lose an award and it's oh. fun. It's great to be nominated, but you still lost the award. So, you know, I think the best way to view any award nomination is, hey, it's a it's a party and you get to see all your friends. That's the best way to do it. Solid advice. Well, Allison, thank you for uh, for joining us. And uh, I'm going to go uh, cry in the corner now. <laughs> Me too. I'm going to go eat some cake. <laughs> all right, fearless listeners. If you heard our crime quiz episode taped live at BauscherCon in Toronto, you might think that Owen Laukinen would never want to be on the show again. You might think he'd gone into the Canadian version of witness protection after that. Well, Eric, we got him back to talk about his new novel, Gale Force. And we promise we're not going to ask him any questions. Oh, wait, I forgot. Asking questions is kind of the point of an interview, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And we promise there won't be any questions. Just awkward silence followed by, <laughs> are you guys recording this? <laughs> Oh, and your brand new novel that uh, is out in May is called Gale Force, and this is a standalone, and the first standalone that's under your own name that isn't uh, a part of your Stevens and Windermere series. Does it feel a little bit uh, like starting over? Yeah, yeah, in some ways. I mean, I hope that this will translate into a series, but in many ways it feels like starting over in a really good way, and that I think, you know, if you write a series for a long time, people start to take for granted that, that you have a, a book coming out every year and that the book is going to be about a couple of detectives. And, you know, it doesn't, it just kind of flies under the radar. And I think with Gale Force, which will be out in May and is a, a tugboat thriller mystery, like it's enough to, to kind of stand out. It seems to, uh, to be kind of a reset in, in the best possible way. But is, you're still joining that, frankly, very tired subgenre of tugboat thrillers. Yes, I, I'm I'm hoping to bring something new to, uh, you know, trying to take the conventions and flip them on their ear a little bit, because we've all, how many tugboat thrillers have we read? I mean, yeah. just too many, so, too many. <laughs> now, Owen, you've done time on a fishing boat, correct? Correct. Yes. And I like the way that you phrased that done time because in many ways it, it does start to feel like a prison. <laughs> so has this story been brewing for a long time? Yeah, yeah, it has. Uh, I was, I was just thinking today, um, you know, I think ever since I was a kid, I've wanted to write not necessarily a 
quote-unquote tugboat thriller but certainly like a, a nautical adventure i didn't i didn't know it would i didn't know there'd be tugboats but uh yeah like my my grandfather uh was a boat builder and a fisherman and my uncle was a commercial fisherman and my dad uh who's a doctor his midlife crisis was buying a commercial fishing boat and uh catching lobster in the morning and treating cancer patients in the afternoon and so I've like grown up around boats and it's kind of uh, cheesy to say, but like there is something about the like romance of the sea, you know, being in one's blood. Okay. So wait, wait a second. You've got boats in your blood, but you are an unabashed train enthusiast. So what is it about transportation that captures your imagination? I, I think it's just, you know, always wanting to be somewhere other than where I am and, you know, looking for an escape route. I, uh, I used to make my parents take me to the bus stop so I could count the buses that go by. So, you know, this is, it's just a, it's an affliction, really. Wow, I guess. You, you couldn't necessarily say that the Stevens and Windermere series were like a Jet Set International thriller series. I mean, why, why do you think you didn't start immediately with a, sort of a globe-trotting adventure series? Well, I mean, the thing is, like, The Professionals takes place uh, in a lot of airports and hotel rooms around the States. Honestly, like I've I've traveled the globe a fair bit, but I'm most at home in like seedy backwoods motels in Tunica, Mississippi, or <laughs> those are the, the interesting parts for me. So in the Stevens and Windermere books, they you know they do travel quite a bit to the places that uh, I, I do a thing when I go on road trips where I just try to like stay at the sleaziest motel I can possibly stay in. So the professionals is, is a lot of a lot of those type of places, and that's what the Stevens and Windermere books are like. So okay, but then I think the obvious question is: when it comes time to write a book, do you hunker down at home, or are these books that we're fans of written in seedy motels all across the world? Oh no, when I'm in seedy motels, I'm trying to survive and, <laughs> and perhaps do some research. I need a comfortable couch in a safe place to actually do the writing. Uh, I have never written anything in a CD motel room besides maybe like a desperate message for help. <laughs> now, you uh, have a rather robust social media presence, uh, like Steve said, mostly to do with your train obsession. Yeah. Um, and also, I, I want to know, how does it feel to be less famous than your dog? Well, I mean, it feels great. Uh, if, you've, if you've seen my dog, you can understand why. Yes, that's true. Uh, you know, she's she's got the looks in the family. So, uh, and you know, I mean, I've tried taking selfies of myself with two toys in my mouth, but it just it, it appeals to a far smaller uh, subset of the population. You have to build an author platform. Yeah, I I've come to the come to the conclusion that Lucy is better than middle-aged man with chew toys as, as platform. But now, but now you have, uh, quote unquote, written a book with Lucy. Is that right? Yeah. And it, I mean, it's hard to like describe it without it sounding cheesy or sounding like, oh, here's a, here's this asshole who's, uh, you know, I don't know. It sounds like some, like a stupid thing that a movie star would do. <laughs> expect to be like patted on the back for it. but no so it was inspired by lucy because lucy's a pit bull and she's a rescue dog and uh, so as soon as you adopt a pit bull you become by law very very like militant about 
protecting the pit bull breed and defending it from like jerks who think pit bulls are going to kill children. And uh, so essentially, you know, as I got more and more into pit bull ownership, I, I started researching, you know, these programs where prisoners uh, are brought rescue dogs and pit bulls to train where it's kind of a redemption thing for not only this, these dogs that have been in dog fighting rings or that have been really mistreated, but also for these prisoners. And so the book kind of grew from that, like what would happen if a prisoner trained a dog and then when the dog got out, the dog got into trouble and the prisoner, when he finished the sentence, found out the dog was in trouble. And, you know, so it's essentially like Jack Reacher with a rescue dog uh, has been the way I've pitched it. I'm going to be really, really disappointed if your author photo doesn't have a chew toy in your mouth for that particular book. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually emailing with the photographer right now to set up the author shot. Uh, I'll add that in. Um, Lucy will be in the author shot. And Lucy, uh, when I was negotiating with the publisher over this deal, we made it a condition that Lucy be allowed to come on the road to signings so lucy will be at bookstores for this is uh, her name above yours on the jacket it had better be <laughs> we know who's selling the books here but <laughs> <laughs> well, oh and we are in the middle of award season you know that's true in yeah. hollywood but it's it's also true in the crime and mystery fiction world that we live in yeah. so what we wanted to know is are awards and award nominations important to you as a writer like, they shouldn't be, but of course they are. Yes, they're more important than I'd care to admit. And damn it, one of these days I'm going to win. Well, I do have uh, one more question. Uh, actually, I don't have it. Uh, my daughter, whom you know and have met, uh, had a question for you. Do you mind if I call her in here? And uh, No, her? no. Okay. Hi, Molly. Hi. How are you? Good. So if you were to write a book about two favorite things, you're dogs and trains, what would it be about? Ah, that's a great question. I could write a whole series about dogs and trains. I, I mean, I would probably write like a children's book about a, a dog who got to drive a train, probably, or a dog who like foiled a train hijacking and became a hero, I, you know. <laughs> um, could you name a character after me? Yes, definitely. Do you want to wait for the dog the dog book, or do you want a character sooner? I'll put a character no. in the one I write. To, she, uh, it, it, Molly is way more into uh, murder in books than you would think, so I think it would actually be an honor for her to get killed in your next book. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> I, will, I will kill you in the next book, Molly. Okay, thank you. All right. Thanks for the question. You know, Steve, I love the idea of a tugboat thriller. I think it's going to be the hot new thing. And here's what we want Writer Types listeners to do. Find us on Twitter, at Writer Types. Let's all come up with the perfect title for your tugboat thriller. Hashtag tugboat thriller. <laughs> and let's see what you guys can come up with for the best title of a rock'em sock'em thriller that takes place on a tugboat. And the winner will get a copy of Owen's new book when it comes out, courtesy of Writer Types. That's right, and Owen's book comes out in May, but you know what, Steve, that's far too long to wait for a new book. Well, lucky for us, we have our resident book reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman, on the line. 
Dan and Kate, uh, last we connected with you guys, you were off in Kansas City talking to a bunch of your favorite comic creators, and now you've actually read some books. We have. <laughs> well, we had to do something on the plane on our way back from Kansas City. So I picked up the anthology, The Obama Inheritance, edited by Gary Phillips. Um, it's short stories basically that are ripped from right-wing headlines. He and all the 15 authors that are in the anthology take like the best Obama conspiracy theories and spin them into short stories. Um, one is by our co-host, Eric Beatner called True Skin. I've heard of that one. You've heard of that guy? Yeah. This anthology also exposed me to authors that I haven't read, such as Walter Mosley, which I know is a crime for not having read Walter Mosley, but this is a great way to get into his writing. Um, he's got a short story called A Different Frame of Reference. It also includes a short story by Travis Richardson called I Know They're In There. And he is also another author that I've never read. Um, he writes His story focuses on death panels, which I had totally forgot about that that was a thing because the last year and a half has been so insane that you just forget about like what all the other stories were that fed into the Obama uh, presidency. So, so it just makes a really interesting and fun read. So I've been working my way through that and I'm really enjoying it so far. So Dan, do you still read books or what? Only with pictures, sir. Only with pictures. But uh, as I work my way back into just text only, I got a, uh, an advanced copy of uh, what I think is going to be one of the biggest books of the year, um, Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. You know, a lot of the things that I read um, will have more of a, a sardonic bent to it or more of a hyperviolent piece to it or, or something like that, more of a fringe piece. Hillier's Jar of Hearts uh, was one of the most suspenseful books that I've read lately. As I step a little bit further and further outside of my wheelhouse, um, you start exposing yourself to some great stuff. Jar of Hearts is the story of three high school friends, but everything kind of takes this horrible, horrible turn when an older boy falls for Georgina and it destroys their friendship and it destroys their whole lives that they built for themselves. And then Angela ends up uh, being murdered and Georgina helps. And it's that kind of tension that you feel it physically. So I kind of been telling people I turned into joy from friends. As we're really getting into it, it, it binds up your, your stomach and you're sweating. And then I, I just wanted to throw the book in the freezer every time it got too heavy. <laughs> and then, then I found out, I, I realized I was carrying the book around the house. You know, I was like, I'm going to go do some laundry. So I would carry the book downstairs and then I'd do the laundry. And I'm like, then I would read a couple pages. And I was like, ah, then I would carry the book back upstairs. And I'd set it down and I'd watch, look at my phone. And I'm like, no, I don't want to read my phone. I want to read the book. And then I'd put the book back in the freezer. This is absolutely the book that I'm comparing everything else to this year. Well, those are great suggestions, you guys, and I can't wait to hear what you pull out of your freezer next month to talk about. <laughs> well, I certainly hope the Malmans are staying warm there in Minnesota. But, you know, we talked to an author in New England who was really getting hammered by the weather recently. That's right. Author Peter Swanson started by telling us his harrowing story of trying to land a plane in a nor'easter. Eric... Was he flying the plane? God, I hope not. He's not qualified for that. He's an author. But he's a hell of an author. As authors, <laughs> we're barely qualified for anything else. Especially hosting a podcast. <laughs> I got hammered by it coming in on a plane. I actually uh, 
we flew in. I flew into Providence uh, two days ago, and we were coming into land, wheels down and everything, planes going like this, and they, it, the pilot just took off, like failed landing, just took off, said we can't land in Providence. Oh no! Said we're going up to Logan, circled Logan, said we can't land in Logan, then went over to Connecticut and landed over there. So had a little bit of a fright. Wow. I mean, not much of one, but enough that like you start thinking about. Your next book idea. That's what you start thinking about. <laughs> yeah, your next book idea. Anyway. The new Peter Swanson thriller, You Can't Land in Providence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, in your brand new novel, All the Beautiful Lies, uh, your character, Harry, is, let's say, manipulated by the women in his life. Yeah. Uh, is this a case of write what you know? <laughs> um, no, it really isn't. Um I mean, yeah, yeah. Obviously, I've been manipulated by women because I'm a man, but but not in in the specifics of this book. He's being manipulated by a sort of an older woman, a stepmother. That's made up. That's fiction. Your your uh, your novel, her every fear, is told from multiple viewpoints. Was that a yes. difficult thing for you to manage? No, I mean, I think it made it easier because you know, if you do one viewpoint, you can only tell one side of the story. And I, you know, for her every fear, I wanted. I guess I really wanted two sides of the story because I wanted to see the protagonist side, but I also wanted to delve more into the criminal side, which is kind of what I like to do in general in books. You know, you can do that two ways. You can, one way is to have a monologue at the end of the book where the bad guy tells the protagonist everything they've done and you give it away that way. And one way is to get into their head a little and, and show it from their side. So I was thinking of doing her every fear straight um, in the Kate's, point of view, but realized halfway through that I, I wanted to show the other side. So at that point, are you talking about a complete rewrite or did you just go in and add other perspectives? You know, I'm a pantser. I, I start with a premise and I start with characters and I go from there. And I have general ideas about what I think might happen, but um, I'm willing to switch up my book, you know, halfway through. And, you, you know, for me, it works. Uh, I think for other people, it's different. I'm not a, I'm not an advocate so much as this is the way I do it. Well, it's, it's brave. I, I'm, I'm an outliner myself for sure. And sure. I, 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 I think I would, uh, I would end up throwing out more pages than I kept if I just tried to wing it. Yeah. I mean, I wing it, but I, you know, I, I definitely don't outline, but I also, I do have a direction. I mean, I'm not like totally just floating in the wind where like anything takes me anywhere. I mean, I, I have a sense of where I'm going and there is, there's always a like terrible moment halfway through where you're like stuck. You're like, I have no idea where this is going. And I think that's the point at which, you know, I've abandoned books in that situation. So um, sometimes you do lo lose a lot of writing. Now I, I find that your books, uh, you're more of a, of a slow burn throughout the books. You know, you're not one for car chases and shootouts, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, wh what about that style of storytelling do you like giving to an audience? It's sort of like lighting a long fuse. Yeah. You know, it's, it has to do with what I read and I love slow burn novels. And in some ways I wish like I, if, if I could write a thriller that was just purely from me, without any thought to what my editor or my agent wants, I would go even more slow burn. Like, I love the idea of a thriller that just blows up at the end um, once. I like dread. I mean, I like dread more than action. So you guys know this too. I think, you know, you're always torn between wanting to build your characters, but also wanting to get into some action early on, get the, get the reader hooked, and, and how much can you get away with? And I think I've been trying to get away with more and more 
of a slow burn as I get older. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's, it's what my tendencies are telling me to do. Well, you, you've also written a lot of poetry, and if, if there was any doubt at all that you are a thriller writer at heart, is it true that you once wrote a series of sonnets based on Alfred Hitchcock films? I did. I did. That was a, that was a winter project. So. so I wrote one. I mean, I wrote a sonnet based on the film Rebecca, and I kind of liked it. I liked it enough to think about, well, I, I, I wonder if I could do a couple other movies. And then I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll do them all. And there's 53 <laughs> Hitchcock films. Um, which is kind of a sonnet sequence. 53 is about right. So it gave me a great project, which was to rewatch the films that I um, had watched already, but then to watch for the first time several of his films. I don't know if the poems are awesome. The process was awesome. You know, to watch one filmmaker, to watch all 53 of his films is fascinating. Is that something you've ever done with uh, with authors? Have you latched onto someone and been like, oh, I, I, now I have to read everything they've ever written? I've read everything that John D. McDonald ever wrote. The guy who wrote the Travis McGee series in the fifties oh. and sixties, and he's an oddity. Um, well, it's first of all, he wrote a lot. So he wrote, I think, hundred twenty books, something like that. Wow! And I started reading them when I was a teenager, and he was a big influence on me. It's kind of forgotten now. Um, he's a great writer. He's a little dated just because he's writing the books are straight out of Mad Men era, so um, you know, they have that kind of feel to them um, in a good way and maybe in a bad way. But yeah, I just I just started collecting them. You know, any used bookstore I go into, I would always look for John D. McDonald, grab anything I didn't have, and uh, eventually one day I read all of them. I, I can say uh, with your new book, it's probably easy to be a completist of your work because this is uh, you're not up to 120 yet. No, I'm up to four. Which um, you know, when I looked at the proof of the new one and saw, you know also buy and it had three, you know, I never thought I'd get there. So it's a good feeling. You know, I'm not on a hundred book pace, let's put it that way. <laughs> Unless you're writing under multiple pen names that we don't know. You could be writing romance novels on the side. We don't know that. Yeah, you know, I could be. Thomas Harris, have you heard of him? <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's you this whole time? <laughs> so I, I read somewhere that your writing has been translated in 30 languages. What, what's the most interesting question you've ever gotten from a translator about one of your books? The Korean translator had a, a, a lot of questions about cars for whatever reason in um, my first book, The Girl with a Clock for Our Heart. And I don't know anything about cars, but I kind of made my main character a car guy, which I'm not. Um, and I just I made him into sobs, but I got all these questions about cars. I don't know if they thought I was interested in that or not, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. They don't ask me questions, which makes me think, I don't know if they're doing a great job translating. <laughs> I mean, I'll never know, but... <laughs> You're not going to learn Korean small. just to be able to read your own translations? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I like the idea, though, that your jacket copy uh, in the bio it describes you as a sob expert in all these other countries. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's funny. They, re they really picked up on that. I'm, go I'm speaking at a convention next week. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say, but... Now, you live in New England, and uh, is there a definition of sort of a New England noir in the same way that there is like a Southern fiction kind of vibe that books have? I don't know if there is, actually, because someone asked me to do this for this next book is to write a list of New England noir. Yeah, I mean, Southern noir for sure, and, and you, you kind of know what that is when you, when you read it. New England, it seems like it's kind of all over the map. I mean, you definitely think of sort of 
coastal Maine kind of um, that that kind of murder mystery. But there's not a ton that you could just name off the tip of your tongue. So, Peter, we're recording this interview uh, deep in the heart of awards season. And yes. I, we were wondering, are awards and award nominations important to you as a writer? Um, how do I say this? No, but I'd be thrilled to get them. You know, most people's bios have a list of the awards they've won. So mine is a bio of awards I've lost but been nominated for. So, you know, if you lose, you don't have to go up and give a speech. Silver lining. Silver lining. Eric. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would, it would make my day probably to be nominated. Well, maybe this is the book, the brand new one, All the Beautiful Lies. You never know. We're star makers, Peter. So now that you've been on the Writer Types <laughs> podcast, uh, you think so? I think, I, well, I hope so, actually. <laughs> Send me correct pronunciations of your name. So I'll thank you in my award speech. <laughs> well, folks, it's unpanel time. And the book on everyone's lips right now is the new collaborative novel, Night of the Flood. We caught up with the editors of this unique project, Ed Amar and Sarah M. Chen, and asked them and some of their contributors what it was like to work on a collaborative novel. First up is co-editor Sarah M. Chen. So this is the first collaborative novel that I've ever worked on. And when Ed asked me to participate, I was thrilled and honored to be asked. And I said, yes, of course. And then later I thought about it and got a little anxious and a little panicked. And I thought, oh my God, what kind of crazy project did I agree to participate in? But once I relaxed and got over my little panic attack, I was fine. And I'd have to say, this is one of the best experiences that I've ever had working on a book or a short story. I feel really lucky to be involved with this group. We all clicked really well together. You know, what could have been a nightmare project ended up being not easy, but it just, things just seem to fall into place and we all just worked really hard and I'm really proud of what we've accomplished and most importantly, it was really fun. This is Ed E.A. Amar, one of the co-editors of and a contributor to The Night of the Flood. There are a lot of challenges when it comes to putting together a novel of linked stories, but truthfully, that gets a lot easier when you're working with talented writers and good friends. I mean, the books received some nice reviews, and we've all been really happy to share the credit. And technically, if you want to divide the credit, you'd have to split it 14 ways, and it's ridiculous to consider analyzing that. You know, but for the sake of it, you could say that we'd each get about 7%. That's not exactly fair, though, because Hank Philippi Ryan was nice enough to write a guest introduction, and we owe her some credit, so that works out to about... 6% credit per person, if you're actually petty and small enough to calculate something like that. You know, but I, I'd also say it's probably only fair that the two co-editors, me and Sarah M. Chen, should get a little more credit since we co-edited the whole thing, so that works out to about 8% credit for us and about 5 for everyone else. You know, and, and then again, I brought Sarah into the project. So, I guess I get most of the credit. I win! Yay, Ed! Sorry, what was the question? With Ed and Sarah guiding the effort, you can just imagine how things went. No, actually, they went much more smoothly than I ever expected. I think the major contributing factor was the fabulous chemistry this group developed as the project moved along. I knew many of the contributors going in, so there was some initial familiarity. But as the book shaped up, everyone fed off each other and really seemed to mesh. 
We communicated primarily through a Facebook group, so I knew I always had a place to go whenever I was in need of some quality procrastination time. Those contributors I didn't already know, I got to meet at a group lunch we had during the Toronto BoucherCon, and we were fortunate that Eric and Lance from Down and Out Books joined us. I should add here what a great publishing partner Down and Out is, really terrific to work with. As far as writing my own story, because I was one of the last few writers to become involved, I had an advantage when it came to incorporating existing characters and plot threads into my work. I could go back and read everyone else's mostly completed stories. I will say this, I felt some serious pressure to write a great story because I didn't want to let the team down. All in all, I had a blast working on this book, and I hope we can all get together on a future project. I'm Gwen Florio, and I wrote the eighth chapter, Marta. In that chapter, Marta is a young Mexican maid to a very wealthy elderly woman. And on the night of the flood, it's the maid who's the one who takes charge. A movie I really enjoy is Defiance, which is a 2008 film about the Bielski partisans. And these were a group of Jews who hid out in the forest in Belarus rather than go to the death camps. And that existence overturned the natural order of things so that um, blue-collar workers and farmers had way better survival skills than intellectuals. Uh, the flood disaster gives Marta that same sort of agency, and she seizes the moment to her best advantage. And all of a sudden, she's the one who's the boss. I love the opportunity that the book gave me to play with that concept, but what I loved most was working with these incredibly talented writers on the project whose work really forced me to up my game. Our next guest is Dharma Keller, who just released Chaser, the first in a new series of thrillers. Uh, unfortunately, Steve, not set on a tugboat. Well, I'm sure we can get around that one since the great tugboat thrillers have yet to be written. But Dharma's been breaking barriers in the crime fiction world for a while now. But she never forgets that the thrill comes first. So your new series stars Jinx Baloo. Uh, yes. So she, she's a bounty hunter, mm -hmm. uh, but she's a very unique one. And I'm going to yeah. let you explain to our audience what makes her so unique. Well, a number of things, uh, but primarily is that she is transgender which is really more a part of her backstory because she transitioned years ago and it's kind of something that she's kind of put in a rear view, but she is outed by a local newspaper reporter and all of that baggage comes into creating havoc for her as far as her career is going. So she finds herself blackballed by a lot of the uh, bail bond agents in the area. It's, it's a very testosterone driven uh, industry, as you can imagine, you know, Mostly male. There are a few women uh, uh, bounty hunters, but uh, so she, she's, she's got uh, being female is a strike against her, being transgender is a strike against her, and so she's just trying to find work and prove herself. So, so the book is a thriller first and foremost. But did right. you did you find uh, any challenges with having a trait like being transgender taking over the narrative of the story? It's you know one of the reasons why wrote this story is because I wanted to write a uh, thriller that wasn't an issue story as far as, you know, it isn't about her transition. It isn't really about her coming out. She does get outed, but uh, it's not about her transitioning or anything. It's about her working as a bounty hunter. And so there were a few times where I'm like, uh, am I pushing the envelope a little bit too far? Am I getting a little too preachy? I try to keep that to a minimum, but 
you know, there's some, some issues come up. I want to show how uh, her experience is shaped by her being transgender, but not defined by her being transgender. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I really appreciated was that it didn't, uh, you know, devolve into that sort of, you know, movie of the week kind of vibe. Right. Like, like her interactions with her parents, her parents right. are, are very supportive. And, mm -hmm. right. and, you know, so you don't have any of that. It's almost like it's almost like false drama. And again, I think I think you it's a good choice when you're going for the thriller genre. It's It's got to right. be the thriller first. Right. Exactly. In, in, in my opinion, it is. I mean. Uh, I, you know, I didn't include any room. I mean, there, she has a relationship, but it's not a romance. It's strictly a thriller, a thr strictly a crime fiction story. In your other series, your character, Shay Stevens is a biker and right. you ride bikes as well, correct? I do. In fact, I'm sort of between bikes at the moment. Uh, the BMW that I I've been riding for the past few years has uh, died on me and I'm hoping to buy a new Honda Magna uh, on this Tuesday. So. But yeah, I love I love riding my motorcycle, especially living in Arizona, where you can ride pretty much uh, year round if you can take the heat. Now, is riding about a subculture like like the biker subculture? Is that the same basic task as writing about the trans community? I mean, is it, are they both just sort of subcultures at one point? I, th I think so. Um, and one of the challenges I you know I had to deal with with the Shea Stevens stories is because. I had to do a little bit of research. I actually interviewed uh, the uh, head of one of the um, uh, outlaw biker groups. And that's kind of interesting because you, you know they're not really supposed to be talking about club business and everything. And so uh, it was a very nerve wracking interview, but it was, it was very informative. So uh, yeah, each, each of the, you know, the, the biker community has its own culture, its own language, and the uh, trans community has its own language, its own culture. And so it's interesting to kind of explore that through the narrative of crime fiction. Now, does this mean if you do get uh, this new uh, motorcycle, is that is that a tax write-off now? <laughs> hey, you know, I like how you're thinking. All right. <laughs> Maybe I can write that off. <laughs> Got to think I, of all I, the angles when you're an author. Exactly, absolutely. I, I need the motorcycle to do my book tours more efficiently because they don't exactly. use as much gas. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> I read in your bio that you've loved books since you were three oh, and yeah. that your first job as a teenager was at a library. Yes, that is true. So when did you know that you wanted to be an author yourself? I was probably in my early teens. I, I was reading uh, uh, books by Lawrence Block and he, at the time he was writing the fiction column for Writer's Digest. And so I was typing out uh, latent ripoffs of like War of the Worlds and, and other stories on my manual Smith Corona. This is back in the late 1970s. So <laughs> this is before laptops and... <laughs> Uh, do, does that mean you have a, a trunk full of uh, dead novels that uh, are never going to see the light of day like the rest of us do? I, I've got a few. Yes, I do, I do have a few. Um, I've uh, A lot of the stuff that I wrote way back then, I think, has been gone by the wayside. And I don't think it will ever. It was probably lost in the family fire. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm saying that I lit the fire. Yeah. <laughs> or if I did, that was the reason why. But Eric, this this is a unique episode. I feel like all of our guests have kind of hinted around admitting to a crime of some sort today. 
I think it's the kind of people that we tend to talk to. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's the company you keep. <laughs> One of the great things about me living out uh, in the desert here is that um, it's really easy to dig shallow graves. So. <laughs> oh jeez. And there's always there's always the spare abandoned my shaft, you know. <laughs> So, Dharma, we're in smack in the middle of award season right now uh, yes. in Hollywood, but also uh, in the crime and mystery universe in which yeah. we live. Uh, so do you think about awards or award nominations much as a writer? Yeah, I, I dream. I would love to have an award. Uh, I, heck, I'd just love to be nominated. But, you know, I'm happy when my friends win, you know, even if I don't even get nominated. That's a very an impressive attitude because uh, I can tell you the last time uh, that Steve and I lost a bunch of awards, Steve was inconsolable, oh. fl flipping tables. <laughs> it, was, it was a mess. I've I, seen the arrest reports. So. Yeah. I regret nothing. I regret nothing. <laughs> well, okay, that does it for this episode, Steve. What have we learned this month? We learned that tugboat thrillers are going to take over the world in 2019. That's right. And don't forget, give us the title of your tugboat thriller on Twitter, hashtag tugboat thriller. We also learned from Allison Galen that our kids are going to lie to us and there's nothing, absolutely nothing we can do about it. And Owen Laukening gave us some practical advice on how to take an author photo. And Dharma Keller taught us that anything can be a tax write-off when you're an author. Well, we're done for this month, but be sure to check out next month when I have a dispatch from the Murder and Mayhem in Chicago conference. We're also looking for your feedback and ratings on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at WriterTypes. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. That's all for this month. Thanks for listening. 